0: chapter 10 we'll look at verses 25 through 37 and this morning we'll spend our time in a very well-known parable but we're not going to recognize it by its usual and traditional title we're going to rename it very deliberately and as we go through the parable young Christians young theologians listen very carefully for this detail who who is in the ditch See if you can hear. This is the good news. Though at first, it certainly doesn't sound like good news from Jesus himself. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day... He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Then you go and do likewise. Now, Lord Jesus, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts... And allow us to see your gospel. We are so skilled at burying your gospel. And making it complicated with the complications of life that we unnecessarily take to ourselves. We convolute it and obscure it. And so this morning, we pray for all the simplicity and the clarity that you gave to the young lawyer. Whether he was tuned into it or not. We ask for your spirit so that we may hear and see and know clearly and simply what is the gospel you have for people like us. For all of these things, we'll give you thanks, and we ask them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? When I was in college, I had a car, and it wasn't a very good one. Just to get it to start and turn over, I would have to pop the hood and take the cap off the carburetor and spray ether down into the valves. My college girlfriend spent more time pushing my car than she spent riding in it, which is one of the reasons that relationship probably didn't go any farther than it actually did. And one night after a date, I dropped her off and I was driving back to my apartment and the car died on a back road behind campus along the railroad tracks where there were no street lamps. So I got out and tried to figure out what to do. And after a few minutes, another car pulled up behind me and five guys got out of the car. And I thought to myself, I'm going to get rolled right here. And as they came up to me, I heard one of them say to his friends, it's times like this that I hate being a Christian. (laughs) And they told me to get in behind the wheel and put the car in neutral, and they lined up on the bumper, and they pushed me off the road into a parking lot. Typical Good Samaritan guilt. Not that I'm complaining, but that's not what this parable is about. And oddly, that's the way we've always read, that that's what this parable is about. This setup for it happens in the way these things usually unfold in the Gospels. There's a dinner party or some kind of gathering, some social occasion with a mixed group and a hot shot lawyer ...pushes his chair back and rises to his feet... ...and asks Jesus a question... ...what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke doesn't like our lawyer very much. He impugns the lawyer's motives in two places. Luke says the lawyer cared nothing about eternal life. He cares about getting Jesus sentenced to death. It was a trap to see if he could goad Jesus into trampling all over the law... The lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, the opening verses say. And then later Luke describes the lawyer as still wanting to justify himself and presumably still wanting to judge Jesus. And Jesus knows what he's up to. Jesus is cagey enough that he puts it back on the lawyer. Woody Allen has this classic bit of dialogue making fun of this rabbi's trick. And Woody asks a rabbi, Why does a rabbi always answer a question with another question? And after a long pause, the rabbi says, Why shouldn't a rabbi always answer a question with another question? What does the law say? What do you read? What do you make of it, Jesus says. And the lawyer quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. He puts the the two passages together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor is yourself. A very strict answer from the Torah. This is Torah 101. And Jesus says, Congratulations, you've passed the bar exam. Do it and live. But the lawyer doesn't want to do it. The lawyer wants to keep the law and get around it at the same time. So he asks a follow up question Uh, Who is my neighbor exactly? Now, look, that's not the real question. Don't get lost in this parable by losing sight of the real question. In this exchange between Jesus and the lawyer, there's a lot of sparring going on. There's the challenge from the lawyer and the sermon of grace from Jesus. There are gambits and feints and misdirections and dodges and parries and punchlines. But if you want to keep it all straight, all you have to do is keep in mind the main question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Because Jesus never lets that question go. All right, here's what the lawyer was hoping Jesus would say. A neighbor herein after referred to as the party of the first part is to be construed as meaning a person of Jewish descent... ...whose legal residence is within a radius of no more than three statute miles from one's own legal residence... ...unless there is another person of Jewish descent... Hereinafter to be referred to as the party of the second part, living closer to the party of the first part than one is oneself. In which case, the party of the second part is to be construed as neighbor to the party of the first part. And one is oneself, relieved of all responsibility of any sort or kind whatsoever. Measurable. Manageable. ...perfectly technical and perfectly heartless. Loopholes. That's what the lawyer is after. Loopholes and not love. And before Jesus answers the lawyer's question... ...with another question, he builds up with a parable. There's a man on a known stretch of road... ...reputed to be a treacherous passage... ...and he's attacked and he's left to die... ...and a priest comes along. And the priest doesn't need love... He's wrapped up tight in his priestly robes and his priestly protocols. And he's either on his way up to Jerusalem to begin his two-week priestly shift in the temple or he's on his way down from Jerusalem to go back home because his two-week shift just let out. But whatever direction he's traveling, if he stops, he could make himself unclean. He could defile himself. What if the man is a Gentile, can't touch him? And what if the man is no longer a man? What if the man has been turned into a corpse? He can't even get near that one. The priest can't dirty himself. He has temple services to attend to or a family to get home to. But either way, contamination and cross-contamination are out of the question. So, to preserve his own purity, he crosses to the far side of the road and he passes on. And a Levite comes along. A Levite isn't as high ranking as a priest, but has religious importance. The Levites were the ones who set up everything in the temple, made sure that everything was ready to go for worship and observances. They made sure that all the pieces were in place and ready for the sacrifices and the prayers and the liturgies and the hymns.ings They were assistants to priests. Commentators say that ...that you can see on this particular stretch of road... ...for miles and miles. And that it's unlikely that the Levite... ...didn't know that the priest was on the road ahead of him. He had seen him. And so when he comes up on the man in the ditch... ...he thinks to himself... ...if the priest didn't stop, why should I? And after all, he's about efficiency. He has time cards, time schedules and sheets... ...running through his head temple to-do list, he's got mitzvahs to manage. So likewise, the text says, just like the priest, thinking only of busyness and duty and obligations, the Levite crosses to the other side of the road and hurries on. And then Jesus introduces a Samaritan of all people. This is a shocking turn for a parable. For a Jewish audience, for Jewish listeners, Samaritans are natural villains... Samaritans and Jews hate each other. There is long hostility, long standing hostility between the two groups. Samaritans were Jews from the northern half of the divided kingdom. After the kingdom is split in two because of David's sin, and there's the Israelite kingdom in the, in the north, and Judah is in the south. The Samaritans were Jews who lived in the north and after millennia of intermarrying with Gentile groups had polluted themselves. Self-polluted Jews is what they were considered. Partial Jews, half-Jews, if even that. They were Jews who had thrown their Jewishness away. It was worse than being a non-Jew. You know... ...that when there were gatherings in the synagogue and the liturgies were recited in the synagogue... ...there were public calls for curses to be poured out from heaven onto the Samaritans. There were public prayers offered up asking that God would not allow the Samaritans to partake in eternal life. And the hatred goes both ways because one chapter earlier in Luke 9... There's a Samaritan village that won't let Jesus stop and rest and eat because they find out he's on his way to Jerusalem. If you have anything to do with the Jews, we want nothing to do with you. There's bad blood all around. So it's very unorthodox that Jesus would make the person of interest in his parable a Samaritan. But the Samaritan has compassion. He is pulled out of his life, out of himself, out of his plans. Pulled off the road, pulled into the ditch, pulled into this man's suffering. And this is where Jesus uses the lawyer's misdirecting question. "Uh, Exactly who is my neighbor? To drag the man by the back of his neck... Back into his primary question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jennifer and I often say that we don't have our dream house. And we never will. But we have our dream neighborhood. And the people up and down our block. Know each other and love each other. And watch out for each other. Even though we look very different from each other. We don't have the same backgrounds, the same upbringings. We don't share the same politics, the same views on education. Sometimes we get on each other's nerves, like when the neighbors, two doors down, won't bring their dog into the house as it stands in the yard and barks all night. And in the middle of the night, I have these thoughts of buying a rooster, just to make a point on the other end of the clock. That'll teach you to leave your dog in the yard. I'll be up anyway. The rooster isn't going to bother me at all. But even when we trouble each other and we bother each other... ...there's still this interest that we have. We watch out for each other when babies are born... ...or surgeries are scheduled... ...or sickness hits. We cook and carry food from house to house... And we watch houses that are empty because a family's away on vacation. And we carry kids to school and pick them up at the end of the day and watch over them in a pinch. And sometimes we even try to protect each other's children. Last summer, I yelled down the block to a little boy who was about to run out behind a parked car and pick up his football bouncing in the middle of the street. Right in the path of an oncoming car. With everything I had, I yelled at him to stop, and he froze on the curb. And when the car passed, I told him he could go. And then I walked down the block to talk to him and to tell him I wasn't upset. I just didn't want him to get hit by a car. And when I got up to the yard, his mother had been sitting on the front steps of the house the whole time. And I said to her, I'm sorry. Had I known that you were out here, I wouldn't have called down. And she said... You don't ever have to apologize for watching out for my kids. You never have to apologize for loving my children. We have people who live next door to us and they close their lives off. What's the difference between someone who lives next door and someone who's a neighbor? Uh, More than just living close. You enter a neighbor's life. And what's odd about this parable is the Samaritan enters another man's death. The Samaritan enters another man's as good as deadness. And that's the big reveal in the passage. Jesus puts himself in the parable too. Though not where you'd expect. He opens the parable by saying there there was a descent. A man was going down on the road from Jerusalem which sits at a high elevation to lowly Jericho, 800 feet below sea level. It's a long, steep grade down, and it's meant to remind us of the descent of Jesus from heaven to earth, from glory to incarnation, from life into death. And robbers fell upon Him, Jesus says, in the parable. In the same way that the Pharisees and the scribes And the Jerusalem Bar Association and the Committee for the Re-election of Herod all came out to challenge Jesus again and again and again. And they took from Him God's covenants and God's law and God's words and the temple and the holy days. All of these things were designed to point to the coming of Jesus Himself. And again and again and again He's dismissed and discredited. And the bandits beat him and strip him and leave him for dead. And those words hang thick with the shadow of Jesus lifted up on a cross on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And the man's wounds were bound up. And he was picked up and carried across town, down the road. The way Joseph of Arimathea did late on a Friday afternoon. And he's put in an inn. And the Samaritan pays for the first night's stay. For the both of them, the Samaritan sits with the man the first night. And then before he continues on his journey, he pays for two more days. Two denarii are paid. A denarius was roughly one day's wage. And so he pays the innkeeper for two days' work. Because it's going to be a full day of work caring for a wounded boarder. It's simple math. One night and two days following. He's in essence buried for three days in the inn. And then the Samaritan promises he'll come back and he'll check on the victim. And if there's any outstanding debt, he'll cover it then. But he has every expectation and hope that this man will live again. He'll come back to life. It's a glimpse, just a glimpse, a hint at the coming resurrection. When Jesus paints himself in this parable, he paints himself as the victim. Come on, did Jesus really have all that in mind as he's telling this parable? He can't possibly have worked all that into the parable. Luke 9.51 says that those were the only things Jesus was thinking about at this point. And when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Luke 9 says. He was only thinking about moving boldly in the direction of the cross. So the lawyer's deflecting question, who is my neighbor exactly, is hijacked by Jesus with nothing short of his unusual gospel. I'm your neighbor, Jesus says. Will you see me as your neighbor? And will you come... And share my death. Will you climb down and join me in my death? Will you love me in my rejection and disgrace and mistreatment and suffering. Precisely because you recognize them as your own. Will you see my cross as the worthlessness of the rules and the laws that you write and you keep. And you police and enforce and try to justify yourself with. And will you see my tomb as the dusty bones of all your religious rigor and discipline? And will you see my resurrection, my pushing out of the tomb from the inside? Not as a matter of Levitical life management, but nothing short of a miracle. A miracle I didn't need for myself. A miracle no one since has matched. Will you see my rising again as strength you didn't have and strength you can't give to yourself? Will you see yourself in me lying face down in the ditch that you have to be picked up and carried and brought to life out of death? And that's why the Samaritan stopped. Not because he was good. There was nothing good in him. The parable has been terribly named. And that poor naming of it has thrown us off the meaning of the thing for centuries. Jesus never calls it the good Samaritan. And he knows what he's doing when he uses the figure of a Samaritan in a parable. A Samaritan is a nothing... So a defiled, dirty, discarded, a a dead man face down in a ditch. A Samaritan could relate to somebody like that because he was all of those things. He had no position to hold on to, no purity to protect and keep intact, no reputation to maintain. He was a Samaritan. And culturally, if he stops and helps this man, and this man's family finds out about it, they're going to hate this Samaritan. How dare you, with your filthy Samaritan hands, touch our loved ones. But he's already a Samaritan. He can't be hated any more than he already is. So he stops. And the point of the parable is clear. Compassion is only for the afflicted. And grace is only for the shamed and the failed... And mercy is only for those who have no options, no solutions, and they're stuck on the wrong end of a dead end. And love is only for those who have no more loopholes to work. And if you have any leverage, any leverage at all, if you have any law to hide behind, any way to calculate righteousness for yourself, or... ...religious rectitude, any holiness that you can brandish and show off and flash like a priest. Or if you have the duty and responsibility, the hurry, the busyness of a Levite off to set things up in the temple. Or you have giftedness, or dizzying wisdom, or dazzling eloquence... Or more than enough personality to walk into a room and light it up. Or to light up a whole city block or Cowboys Stadium for that matter. Or you're impressive. Or you've earned a perch of honor to which everyone around you must look up with respect. And from which you can look down on everyone else pityingly. Or you're reliable, always pulling through, always exceeding expectations, always leaving people wanting more, you've got them eating out of the palm of your hand, or you have an impressive spiritual churchly resume and you never miss an opportunity to read it off for anyone who will listen. If you have any leverage, any leverage at all, you don't need love. Leverage is always looking a way to avoid needing love and leverage allows us to negotiate with God if we have things to use for ourselves then at our whim at our discretion on our clock we can pull God near when we need him and hold him at a distance ...when we don't. But if you have nothing... ...if you have nothing left to lose... ...and nothing to hold on to... ...your only choice is to give yourself up... ...to be loved. The gospel is... ...we never have the leverage we think we have. And Jesus is never as short on love for us... ...as we think he is. And that's why grace always comes... ...in weakness... As weakness. And that's why grace always comes for weakness. The gospel is for losers. And that's why Jesus threw himself into a ditch. Your ditch, to be exact. I know this is an unusual interpretation for the parable. This isn't what we're used to hearing when we get to this parable. So I'm going to press the point one step further. Because in the next account, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is at the home of friends, two sisters, Mary and Martha by name. And you know the story. Jesus is in the front room, teaching and talking to his friends... And Mary is sitting doe-eyed and stupid at Jesus' feet. And she's hanging on his every word. And she's soaking up every drop of his presence. And she wants to offer him nothing because she has nothing to give. And she knows that he has worlds to give to her. And Martha is busy. She's restocking the buffet. She's lifting glasses and putting them on coasters. She's refreshing drinks, clearing plates, doing the dishes as they stack up in the kitchen. Martha's impressive and Jesus is ignoring her. And if you were in the house on that day, you would think that Martha was admirable and you'd hate Mary. Finally Martha can't take it anymore so she just comes out with it. Jesus, tell my sister to get off her lazy backside and bust these tables. You tell her to be as diligent and dutiful and hardworking as me. In other words, Martha turns lawyer. Jesus, just tell me what I have to do to get you to love me. What do I have to do To get you to love me. And Jesus says. Nothing. The work of love is mine to do. And it's yours to soak in. What do you have to do? Stop your doing. Come listen. As I tell you how I love you. What do you have to do? Pull up a chair. So when the young lawyer says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, nothing. It's my inheritance. I've earned it, and it's mine to give away as I please. What must you do? Pull up a ditch and die. That's who I give my love to, ditch dwellers and the as good as deads. If you want to pull the meaning of this parable into your heart and into your life, it's very simple and incredibly difficult all at the same time. Stop practicing law. Stop pretending that you have the pious importance of a priest. Give up on the busyness of the Levite in the temple or Martha in the front room. Stop trying to justify yourself. Stop putting the love of Jesus to the test. Just find your ditch. The place of lowness. The place of your deepest hurt. The place of your failure. The place of fear. The place of your insecurity and your deepest loss. The place of your need and your irreversible Samaritan nothingness. And stop trying to talk your way out of it stop trying to think your way out of it and stop trying to claw your way out simply say Jesus this is the need you've given to me because this is where you give to me your love now overwhelm my need with your love and don't ever let me think myself strong Twelve years ago, I was in Peru with a group of Americans, and we were being given a tour of a shanty town, this village that had been built up over a tributary of the Amazon. They called them houses, but they were more like scrap wood shacks with corrugated steel roofs. And they were all put up on stilts, and the streets of this village were footbridges, planks. ...of wood laid side by side... ...and nailed to the tops of pylons... ...that had been driven deep into the riverbed. Now, if you've ever been to the Third World... ...and you've ever been to a village like this... ...where there's open water nearby... ...you know that a river, in this case... ...serves two functions. It's a source of water... ...for drinking and cooking and washing... ...and it's also a toilet... There's no plumbing. There's no sewage. So it was, it was rough to be around, to be walking over, to be surrounded by. But there we were in this village, and children were taking us from house to house. They were showing us where they live, introducing us to their families. And I was with one little boy standing in the front room, meeting his mother, and there was an ear-splitting crack from somewhere behind me. And one of the footbridges had given way with three of our groups standing in the middle of it. And down they all went into the river. Two college students, one young man, one young lady... ...and one silver-haired, 67-year-old retiree named Ruth. And the college students went into hysterics. They screamed and flailed and thrashed around... ...and only made their situation worse. And when Ruth went into the river... ...somehow she ended up standing on one of the broken planks... ...that had lodged itself on something beneath the surface... And I'll never forget the sight of her standing there with the reeking water lapping at her chin. And she was stoic and serene and calm as could be. And the college students finally clambered out. But Ruth just stood there waiting for someone to come and pull her out. And some men from the village came in a dugout canoe and lifted her as easily as taking a fish from a net. Later that night, we were all cleaned up, not necessarily calmed down. The college students were reliving their experience with a lot of drama and exaggeration, and revulsion and shuddering. And Ruth just sat there, looking serene as usual, a gleam in her eye, this quiet, knowing smile spread on her lips. And she never came out and said it. I wished she had just come out and said it. But I read her expression. And I bet she would have said something like. I've been drowning in a river of crap my whole life. And most of it my own. And Jesus has been pulling me out my whole life. Spoken like a true Samaritan. Who knows that to find the love of a Savior, you only have to look as far as the bottom of your own ditch. And that's the story of grace. That's the story of the gospel. And that's the only kind of parable Jesus tells. If you have ears to hear, hear. In the name of the Father and of the Son the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are not good, O Lord, but we try to make ourselves look good by using law and priestly practice and industrious busyness. Instead, make us like the Samaritan with nothing to lose and nothing to hold on to. And in that, we have all of your love all of your strength and all of your supply for our shame and our weakness and our need. And then we'll be happy. Then we can stop trying to justify ourselves. Then we can stop putting you to the test. And We know that in this life we'll never be done with it altogether, but maybe, maybe just to have less of it. Will you give us that? We use your gospel to help us to do it less. And now we come to the table to have bread and wine, to be fed by you because we can't feed ourselves. And what we do feed ourselves isn't worth devouring. So for our emptiness, now, Lord, feed us with grace and mercy and truth and righteousness and wholeness. As we eat the bread and drink the wine, remind us that all of our guilt died its its last gasps on your cross. And newness and restoration for our bodies, for our hearts and our flesh walked out of the tomb in your risen body. And eating and drinking, all of our weakness that seems to be so strong and pervasive loses more and more ground. And all of your righteous strength gains more and more territory in us. So allow us to eat and drink with faith, not approving of ourselves, and not needing to accuse ourselves either. You know what nothings we are, just as the Samaritan was. And yet you have given yourself to love People such as we are. So lift our hearts with eating and drinking and make us glad to know again the depths of your love. And from that love, allow us to live and serve freely and not fearfully. And now, church, what is it that you say you believe, along with the church of all ages? From thence you shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.